Well, we're going to um, think now together about this passage of God's words, and we're going to cover the next two chapters in Hosea, Hosea chapter 6 and 7. Um, we've heard a little bit of it read, um, but we're going to work our way through. So if you've got a Bible, have that open and you'll see as we follow through. But I want us to start with the passage in Matthew, um, because it's an interesting little account where Jesus has this dispute with the Pharisees. He's just called um, this tax collector to follow him. And he's now having a party at this tax collector's house. And the Pharisees are unhappy. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus' answer, Jesus says to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Guess where those words come from? They're from Hosea chapter 6. So Jesus, as he looked at the religious leaders of his day, he said to them, you need to go and learn what Hosea meant when he said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And I want to suggest this afternoon that it might be wise for us to listen to Jesus say to us this afternoon, go and learn what this means. You see, Jesus thinks that the words, this phrase in Hosea, which kind of takes us back to the whole of Hosea chapter 6, he thinks it's so important for us to get our heads around that he points us to it. Just notice, look at it. God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. God has an ambition for you. He has a desire for you. He has a vision for your life. I don't know about you, but I find that in lockdown, I tend to lose my sense of ambition. I don't think I've been particularly ambitious in the last few months. In fact, it feels much more like I'm in survival mode, trying to get through it. I'll get back to having dreams and ideas and visions and things like that once lockdown's finished. But for now, we'll just shrink down our ambitions and try and get through this. We'll lower our sights and perhaps... Some of us have even done that with God. We've sort of lowered our ambitions in our relationships with God. We've sort of settled for a kind of lockdown relationship with God. Have you lost your ambition for God? Because I tell you this, God has not lost his ambition for you. God has an ambition for you. And he wants each of us to see that this afternoon through his precious words. Here's his ambition. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You see, we're getting a glimpse into the very heart of God. This is what he wants from his people. This is his great desire. And he sets up these two alternatives. You can see that they're set against each other. Mercy or sacrifice. Now what we're going to see when we get back to Hosea in just a moment is that this word mercy is not just he wants us to be nice to each other. It's a much deeper word than that. It goes deep into our very hearts, into our heart motives and our heart's orientation. He wants our hearts to be oriented towards him and towards love and towards mercy. It's about our internal life rather than sacrifice, which 
in this particular way it's being used, is referring to our external performance, our external obedience. And God is saying, I want your reality, not your rituals. I want your love, not your performance. I want your heart, not your religion. God's ambition is that we would be people whose hearts burn with love for Him. That we would know Him. That is what the ultra-religious Pharisees of Jesus' day were missing. Look, they had their sacrifices, and they had their prayers, and they had their fasting, and they had their law-keeping, but Jesus says, that's not it. That's not God's ambition for you. As Jesus looks at the Pharisees, he sees people who've settled for less than what God has for them. So he says, go and learn. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Go back, Pharisees, to Hosea and study it again. You've missed it. And he says the same to us. Is it possible that we've missed it? Is it possible that we've settled into an outward form rather than an inward reality? God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So let's obey Jesus. And let's go back to Hosea chapter 6 and let's go and learn. And let's ask that he, by his Spirit, be changing us. Why don't we pray as we come to this passage? Father, please, we want to be those who learn. Lord, please, by your Spirit, would you help us to see a glimpse of your heart? Father, you desire mercy, not sacrifice. You desire reality, not ritual. Lord, we want to know that and ask for your help even now as we explore that theme. In Jesus' name, amen. So by this point in Hosea, by Hosea chapter 6, if you remember, we've seen in chapters 1 to 3 that the story is set up of the marriage between Hosea and Gomer, which is a picture of the relationship between God and his people. And the thing we've banged on and on about for the last two weeks is covenant love. God loves his people with an unswerving and unfailing love. He has promised, covenanted to love his people and he will not break that promise, even though they are unfaithful. So that was chapters 1 to 3, the beauty of God's love. And you get these covenant moments where it sounds as if he's about to break the covenant, but then he says, but how can I? How can I break my covenant? That was chapters 1 to 3. Last week, we were looking at chapters 4 and 5, and we heard the charge that God has against his people. He says to his people, the situation is serious. You have broken the covenant. Like an unfaithful wife, you have run off after other lovers. You've pursued other gods, given yourself over to adultery. And God was very clear about the seriousness. God is rightly angry with his people. But at the end of chapter 5, we ended last time on this, there was just a little flicker of hope. Look at at the last verse of chapter 5. God says, I'm going to, in, chapter, in verse 14, he says, I'm going to tear them to pieces. 
I'm going to punish them. But verse 15, then I'll return to my lair until they have borne their guilt and seek my face. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. And it's as if Hosea, as he gives this message, he hears this little note of hope and it kind of, he latches onto it. And in chapter 6, 1 to 3, the bit we've just heard read, Hosea makes this heartfelt appeal to Israel. He says, come, come let us return to the Lord. Did you not hear it? Did you not hear the flicker of hope? We can still seek his face. It's not all over. There's still hope. And so Hosea calls on Israel. That's what I think is happening in chapter 6, 1 to 3. Hosea speaking. And here's the first of two big things we're going to see this afternoon. And the first big thing is this. The glorious hope of return. So look at chapter 6, verse 1. Imagine Hosea turning to Israel and saying, Come, let us return to the Lord. He's torn us to pieces, but He will heal us. He has injured us, but He will bind up our wounds. It's not too late. Do you hear Hosea's confidence? He will, he will, he will. This is not, hey, look, if we cross our fingers, if we do enough kind of religious stuff, perhaps God will have us back. Maybe we could persuade him. No, Hosea is so absolutely confident about what he knows of the character of God that he says, if we return, he will heal us. He will forgive us. How does Hosea know that? Well, because the God of covenant love is so quick to forgive. Yeah, there will be a time of suffering, Hosea says. But after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, there will be restoration. I wonder if you have a view of God that allows you to return to him from a place of failure. To return to him, not with a kind of, oh, I'm not sure how this is going to go, but with a confidence that says we can return. You see, what you believe God is like will entirely shape the way that you approach him. Okay, look, imagine something with me. Imagine a child who uh, lives in a house with a garden, and uh, they love to play football. But sometimes the football goes, goes over the fence. And uh, this gardener's got two next-door neighbors, one either side. And on one side lives a neighbor who is grumpy and angry. And when the ball goes that way, the child in the garden is terrified. You know, they present the child with a bill for the crushed plants and the smashed windows. On the other side is a neighbor who's kind and forgiving. And even when the roses are crushed and the greenhouse is smashed, they're still quick to forgive, willing to forgive. So when the bull goes that way into the scary neighbor, they're filled with dread and fear. They don't want to approach. In fact, they'd rather buy a new ball and go and get it back. Perhaps some of us have had experiences like that, right? We've had neighbors like that. But when it goes this way, they feel no dread. They go and they knock and they say, I'm sorry. And the neighbor smiles and welcomes them in. Gives them the ball back and gives them some sweets as well. How do you feel about approaching God? Do you approach him like that? 
Or do you approach him like that? Do you approach him with fear and dread? Perhaps even think, I'm not even sure I dare go. It's too scary. Well, Hosea pleads with Israel, come on, let's return to the Lord. He'll restore us. He'll heal us. He'll bind us up. Even after all we've done. Confidence in God's restoring power so that, look at the end of verse 2, that we may live in his presence. Israel, that's what we were made for. Israel, that's our privilege to live in the presence of God. What are we doing over here? Come on, let's return. And look at verse 3. You've got to hear Hosea pleading with Israel. Let us press on. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. Surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Let's press on. Remember I said last week that the problem is not that they've done naughty things. It's that they've broken this covenant with God. They were supposed to know him. Remember last week we said that's an intimate knowledge, not a know about. You're supposed to know him. And Hosea said, let's return to that. Press on to know him. And, and, And not to give up on that, but to push, to press that we might know the one that we were made for. Because he's going to appear. Israel, you can enjoy him again. It's a, I mean, it's a crescendo of hope and invitation, isn't it? Do you, do you feel anything of hope rising within you as you listen to Hosea preach? Come, let's return. Yeah, but I've had a terrible week. Come on, let's return. You don't know what I've done. But he will, he will heal you. He will bind up your wounds. Come, let's return. In many ways, as a preacher, I listen to Hosea preaching this. And I think this is his great crescendo, right? This is, his, this is the end of his sermon. This is the big appeal. Israel, this is it. Let's go back. And we're expecting to say, we're expecting Hosea, the next words Hosea to say is, Let's bow our heads in prayer. Because that's how all preachers indicate that they've finished. Those are the words that many people long to hear. (laughs) Let's bow our heads in prayer. That's the moment you go, he's finished. This is great. And that's what we're expecting from Hosea. But before Hosea can round off his prophecy, God speaks again. No, the work is not yet done. Hosea is not going to be a book of five chapters and three verses. In fact, there's still a long way to go. Just have a look at verse 4 of chapter 6. Here is Hosea bowing his head in prayer. Come on, Israel, let's return to the Lord. Great, that's what we're going to do. Let's bow our heads in prayer. And then God speaks. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. And this glorious hope of return, which genuinely is a beautiful and glorious hope, is punctured by the harsh reality of the people's hearts. You see, this invitation that Hosea calls on the people to accept, 
They can't do it. Just cast your eye back to chapter 5, verse 4. See, here's the problem. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the Lord. So despite this glorious offer of return, this glorious hope that is to be found in God, they cannot return because there's something so deeply broken and wrong in their hearts. And what we're going to see is that something far more radical than just a nice little invitation, come on, let's go home, something far more radical is going to be needed if people are ever going to return to the God who made them. And this is the second thing we're going to see, the desperate need of the people. Yeah, there is a glorious reality, like a glorious reality of return, but the people can't. And what happens through chapters 6 and 7 is God gives five images. Um, if, If you're into similes, right, if you're an English teacher, Hosea goes simile mad in chapters 6 and 7. He says, this is what you're like. You're like this. 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 And we're just going to pick those five themes up and see why, what it is about the people that mean they cannot return. And then we're going to see how it is that God is going to have to act in a far more radical way than just issue a command to return. So let's just go through the five images. I've just read the first one in chapter 6, verse 4. It's the morning mist. God says to his people, you're like the morning mist. So picture the scene. It's the stillness of morning. Um, It's beautiful. And you go out to a field. And there's a mysterious fog, mist, hanging over the field. It's beautiful. It's eerie. It's majestic. You get at your phone because you want to capture it. You want to take a moment to to, to capture this moment because it's mesmerizingly beautiful. But about an hour later, it's gone. There's nothing there. It just disappears. And you see that that's what God says about his people. Can you sense that almost the frustration within God at his people? That's what your love is like, he says to Israel. A superficial, shallow love. Now remember, when Hosea first wrote, he was writing to Israel. That is, the northern kingdom of God's people. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Israel, also called Ephraim. Hosea is speaking particularly to the northern kingdom of Israel. And he says to them, when I look at you, I I see these moments of devotion, I see these moments of love, but it's just gone so quickly. I wonder whether you ever see anything similar in your own heart. Can you relate to that? Moments of enthusiasm and passion. Moments when you feel so alive towards God. It seems so real, but then it's gone. And it might just be a couple of hours later, 
after this amazing moment of feeling so alive for God that some temptation comes into your life and it's like your love has just evaporated. And you find that all of that great intention and all of that passion is gone. Can you write to that? It's interesting because Adam is mentioned. Um, So let let me just uh, read some more. I'm going to read from verse 4 through to verse 6. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the mouth of my words. Then my judgments go forth like the sun. So so God says, I'm going to speak words that will expose you. and, And I'm going to speak words that will show how serious this situation is. Verse 6, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. I don't want, God says, your momentary expressions of passion. I want mercy. I want you to know me. My ambition, God is not settle. It doesn't settle for a brief moment of love. Any more than a, a wife would settle for a husband who brings her flowers once a week and then ignores her for the rest of the week. God says, I don't want your brief moments. I, I want your heart. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Verse 7, he mentions Adam. As at Adam, let's talk about Adam and Eve, they've broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to me there. So just like Adam, right back at the very beginning, broke the covenant with God. His love for God evaporated. So the people have done the same. Do you find that? I find it really frustrating, actually. Because there's a big part of me that would love to have a heart that was 100% for God. And I find that my mistiness really frustrates me. I find myself so often disappointed by my shallow, superficial love. I find myself feeling rubbish and guilty about it. Because I've blown it again. It's like Jesus' disciple Peter, who said, Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. Jesus, I'm ready to die with you. Just a couple of hours later, in front of a servant girl, he'll deny Jesus. How can his love have evaporated so quickly? Because that's what our fickle hearts are like, right? It's our problem. It's why we need a more radical solution than just a, hey, come on everyone, let's sing and let's come back to God. We need something more radical. We need God to do something to our hearts. God to change us. You see, God's ambition for us is not that we would simply have love that fizzles out. No, he desires mercy, not sacrifice. And so this afternoon, I wonder, will we admit our hearts are like that? And rather than settle for that and say, oh, well, that's just the way it is, would you ask Jesus to be transforming your heart? We're going to see how that happens later. Uh, Would you be asking Jesus to transform your heart? Do you have an ambition for that? Here's the second image. We're going to jump down to chapter 7, verse 3. We've seen the morning mist. Here's the burning oven. 
Let's jump down to 7, verse 3. They delight the king with their wickedness, the princes with their lies. They are all adulterers, burning like an oven, whose fire the baker need not stir from the kneading of the dough till it rises. On the day of the festival of our king, the princes become inflamed with wine, and he joins hands with the mockers. Their hearts are like an oven. They approach him with intrigue. Their passion smolders all night. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven. They devour their rulers, all their kings fall, and none of them calls on me. Do you hear it? I mean, oven. It's like an oven, right? He uses this image. And so the morning mist, which is so temporary and transitory, the thing that doesn't change, Hosea says, is a smoldering, burning fire in the heart. Rather than living with hearts that burn for God, instead they have hearts that burn for what is wrong. I guess we've all played with fire, right? Some of us probably more than others, and some of us perhaps more than is wise. But we've all known what it's like to have a big blazing fire, and it it burns down to just the embers, but how suddenly you can make it blaze again. God says that's what the people's hearts are like. It's not just that they have misty love, it's that they have hearts that kind of just smolder with desires that are wrong that so easily just flame up. It takes virtually nothing to kindle it and to get it burning. It talks about um, the idea of that they're festivals and they become inflamed with wine and they're mocking and then they're devouring rulers. It's, it's an out-of-control thing, whether it's that they're drinking or whether it's that they're going after power. It, these are the things that inflame their hearts. And if you go back and read the history of Israel around this time, there's just king after king after king. This king gets assassinated by this king's son who becomes king. He gets assassinated. He doesn't last long. Another one comes. He gets killed. Because there's this heart that is smoldering and burning. The heart is out of control. It's driven along by a desire. Can you relate to that? Can you relate to that idea that sometimes something happens and suddenly your heart, it's almost like it flares up. Maybe it flares up in anger and you you just lose it. Or maybe it flares up in, in lust and you find yourself out of control doing something and you think, I can't stop. Maybe it flares up in terms of alcohol and, and greed. Or it flares up in terms of ambition, but there's something or greed or envy and you find your heart just flared up. Why is that? It's because there is a continual smoldering in the human heart, which is why... We need a more radical act from God than just to say, hey, come, let's go back to God. And if you know anything of that, if you know that your heart sometimes is out of control, and even when you've got it under control, the problem is it's still smoldering like an oven that can so easily flare up. Well, if you know that, then admit your heart is like that. Be honest about that. And ask that Jesus would be the doctor you need to heal your heart. And restore you. Here's the third image. The half-baked loaf. 
This is verse 8. Ephraim mixes with the nations. Ephraim is a flat loaf, not turned over. This is not a simile now, because it's not like it. It's a metaphor, just in case you're interested. We've dropped the simile stuff now. You just go, no, you're just a flat loaf, not turned over. Foreigners sap his strength, but he does not realize it. His hair is sprinkled with gray, but he does not notice. Israel's arrogance testifies against him, but despite all this, he does not return to the Lord his God or search for him. What is this flat loaf not turned over? What does that mean? Well, if you cook your loaves in ovens like they would have had back in the day, a half is, it's half-baked, right? It's cooked on one side. So if you approach this loaf from one side, you go, oh, yum, a delicious loaf. That looks nice. But when you get to it, the reality is it's raw. Disgusting. I, had a, um, I, I can relate to this very well because the first time I ever cooked a roast dinner, I was about 15. Mum and dad were away and I invited my mates over. I was a bit of a, this is, I was kind of mid, mid, middle-aged as a teenager. I invited my friends over for a roast rather than a party. That's how it goes. Anyway, um, I thought we'd roast and I, I got a joint of meat out of the freezer um, I got it out a little bit late, to be honest, and I realized it was frozen. And I realized I didn't really have time to let it defrost anything. But I thought, well, surely the quickest way to defrost it is to put it in the oven, because it's hot, right? So I'll just cook it. So I put it in the oven and cooked it for the right amount of time. Got everything else ready. And it was terrific. And I got it out of the oven, and it looked amazing. I was like, look at me, what a boss. But when I carved it, you know where this is going, it was still frozen in the middle. Like, literally still frozen. And so you had this roast dinner that arrogantly proclaimed, look at me, I am delicious. I am beautiful and will satisfy you. But you cut it open, it's disgusting. God says that's what his people are like. They're a loaf, but they're not fully cooked. They're only half cooked. And so although there are points at which it might look like they're truly God's people, the reality is they're not. They're mixed with the nations. They're no different to the people around them. I guess you'd say in modern language, this is the sort of Sunday Christian who comes to church and who can put on a good show and who everyone goes, they're a great Christian. Look at them. Aren't they fantastic? The sort of person who people look at and they're impressed by and they respect, but through the rest of the week, their life is, looks no different to the world around. They mix with the nations. And they don't realize it. They don't realize what they're doing. I love this little note about hair being sprinkled with gray, but they don't notice. You, know, you don't notice. You think everything's okay. There's an arrogance in us. And they do not return to the Lord or search for him. See it? Because if you think you're okay, if you look at the cooked bit and you say, I'm okay with God, of course I am. Of course you won't return to him. Because your arrogance thinks that you're okay. And perhaps for some of us, we are very complacent in our relationship with God. We think we're fine. Of course God loves me. I'm an awesome Christian. I do all this stuff. I'm busy. I do these things. Of course God loves me. 
But could it be that actually there's sacrifice but not mercy? It's cooked but raw. God says, don't be a half-baked loaf. Watch out for that. And if you can see something of that, the, the solution, the answer is not, oh, I better try and cook the other half. The answer is you need a doctor to fix your heart. The answer is you need someone to transform your heart. Simply going, fine, I'll return to God. You can't. Your deeds do not permit you to return to the Lord. God has to do something far more radical if his people are ever going to truly return to him. The fourth image um, is the foolish bird. Look at verse 11. Ephraim is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, now turning to Assyria. When they go, I'll throw my net over them. I'll pull them down like birds in the sky. When I hear them flocking together, I will catch them. Woe to them because they've, dis- they've strayed from me. Destruction to them because they've rebelled against me. I long to redeem Look, you've got to see this, right? I long to redeem them, but they speak falsely about me. They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but wail on their beds. They slash themselves, appealing to their gods for grain and new wine, but they turn away from me. You see, the foolish bird flies around, desperately looking for something or someone who can help them. And the picture is senseless, right? They go over here, then they go over there. You know, um, if you've ever seen a a bird like trying to cope with a window and it kind of bangs on the window and it's pecking around on the window and it can't find help but it's desperately looking everywhere it can and the picture is of people who are looking for someone who can help them and look where they look they look to Egypt and Assyria Egypt is the place where they were slaves and God rescued them Assyria is the place where they're going to be slaves And yet the problem is, often our hearts, we just run around looking for something and we go over here and then we go over here and then we go over here and perhaps some of us relate to that. We're restless. Our hearts are restless, desperately trying all sorts of different things, trying to find something that will satisfy us. That's what our hearts are like, like foolish birds flitting around. And we end up, verse 14, they cry out, they do not cry out to me from their hearts, but they wail on their beds. Isn't that telling? They don't return. They don't cry to me. And when they find that there's nothing, then they wail on their beds. Pictures of a child having a tantrum, right? Oh, poor old me. Everything's gone wrong. Life is so miserable. And God says, but I'm your father. I'm your husband. I love you. I long to redeem you, but you won't return to me. This is what God sees in the heart of his people. And this is why something more radical is going to be needed than just a, hey, let's go back. We're going to need God to do something so radical because our hearts are like foolish birds. And this is what many of us have experienced. Haven't you ever known this? You think this will solve it, this will solve it, this will solve it. And often we turn to the very things that end up enslaving us rather than setting us free. And the last picture is the dangerous bow. Have a look at the last couple of verses. I trained them and strengthened their arms, but they plot evil against me. They do not turn to the Most High. They're like a faulty bow. Their leaders will fall by the sword because of their insolent words. For this, they will be ridiculed in the land of Egypt. 
And the picture is, you know, a faulty bow. You ever done um, bow and arrowing? Archery. <laughs> There's the word. You ever done um, archery? You really don't want a faulty bow, I'll tell you that much. You don't want a bow that's going to flick an arrow in your face. You don't want a bow that's going to snap. And God says, that's what my people are like. They're inconsistent and unreliable. It's dangerous. They don't turn to the most high like they're created to. Instead, they just kind of wave around all over the place. I've only done clay pigeon shooting once, actually twice in my life. The first time was a complete disaster. It was with this quite important man. In, it doesn't matter who he was, but anyway, in Jordan. And um, he got this clay pigeon shooting thing out and gave me a gun, and I didn't know what I was doing. And I was just holding it like this. And, um, and then he said something to me. And I, and I just went, uh, yeah, and pointed the gun straight at him, which he didn't think, he was very angry. He said, don't ever point that straight at me. And, and we can be a liability, right? God, it says, is the one who's given us gifts, and he's given us stuff, and he's given us things. But if we then just kind of like a faulty bow, just going, whoa, where's this going to fire? We can cause such damage and such danger. And God says, that's the problem. I train you, and then you use your weapons against me. And so here is Hosea. He uses these five images. Now, just, just stop for a second. Which of those five images particularly speaks to you? Is it the morning mist? It's here, but then it's gone. Is it the burning oven? That raging fire that just flares up and seems to take control of even when you don't want to do it? Is it a half-baked life? That you look good on a Sunday, but you know it's not real. Is it the foolish bird desperately trying to find something or someone to solve their problem? Or is it the dangerous bow? A liability, just taking God's gifts and using them for however you want. See, God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, as we look at this and as we have our hearts sort of exposed and examined, and let me tell you, this passage has really exposed my heart this week. Actually, it leaves us saying, well, what do we do then? You've got this glorious hope of return, but we can't return because our hearts are like these five things. Well, if we're going to be healed, if our hearts are going to be healed, we need a doctor. We need a doctor who can do radical heart surgery on us. And that doctor's name is Jesus. Jesus who said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, here's the beautiful thing about that story. Stick with this, okay? This is the finish, right? Stick with this. Who was it that Jesus called when he said those words, I desire mercy, not sacrifice? Who was it that Jesus had just called to follow him? It was Matthew. Matthew, the tax collector. Yes, Matthew, who wrote Matthew's gospel. You see, Matthew, as he thought of Jesus, his first encounter, his first experience, some of the first words he heard from the lips of Jesus were, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. 
Can you think of the hope that would have given Matthew? Matthew, who looks at the Pharisees and says, I could never perform like them. I'm way short of them. I could never be as good as them. But Jesus says, no, Matthew, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I came to heal your heart. I'm not interested in your performance. I'm interested in healing your heart. I think that's why Matthew's the only gospel writer who includes Hosea 6, verse 6. And guess what? He includes it twice. And just a couple of chapters later, he's going to record Jesus saying it again. Because these words were so precious to Matthew. He wants mercy, not sacrifice. That means I can come back. That means I can come because he doesn't need my performance. He needs my heart. He wants to heal my heart. And even in Hosea 6, there's a tiny hint, isn't there? Just a hint, which is difficult to ignore, of how that mercy will come. Listen to chapter 6, verse 2 again. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us. On the third day. Does that give you a hint? How is it that Jesus is going to be able to be the doctor who heals even our hearts? Well, because he's going to be the one who goes to the cross. He's going to be the one who suffers and dies. The one who is torn to pieces. The one who's injured. And who on the third day is restored. You see, Jesus is the one who can be the doctor for us. And therefore, whether it's the morning mist or the burning oven or the half-baked loaf or the foolish bird or the dangerous boat, whatever you see in your heart, wherever you see your heart unable to return to God, then the solution this afternoon is not, right, I must try harder. The solution this afternoon is to come to Jesus, the great doctor, like Matthew did, and say, Jesus, heal me. Jesus, restore me. Jesus, raise me up. Would you give me a heart that burns with love for you? Would you give me a heart that overflows in mercy towards others? I want to be a person, I want to be a man or a woman whose heart burns for you. Is that what you long for? That's what God longs for you. That's his ambition for you. And in these days of lockdown, let's be people who pursue it. Let's not settle for an external sacrifice. Let's pursue the doctor who can change our hearts. And the reality is that as we go through life, we're still going to be misty and burning and half-baked and foolish and dangerous. We're still going to be all those things. But when we see that in us, we go back to the doctor and ask him. And by bit by bit, he transforms us to be the people that he longs for us to be. He longs to redeem you this afternoon. Come to him. Come let us return because the doctor is waiting to heal you. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you speak like this because you love us. You speak like this because you're a God of amazing mercy. Lord, thank you that your ambition for us is mercy, not sacrifice that we would know you. So Lord, we pray that as we let you expose our hearts, that we would come to the doctor and find healing in him. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.